And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We are continuing our look at the apostles or the sending out of the, uh, the 12 apostles. And this morning we'll look at verses 16 to 20. Matthew 10 verses 16 to 20. Behold, I sent you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, but ye therefore be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. Father, you would sacrifice your only son in our place. Father, it is still unbelievable to us. But we sit here this morning, or we're here this morning because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We thank you for the salvation that was offered to us freely and we thank you for the freedom that we have to receive it. So this morning we rejoice in where we stand in the new identity which you've given to us. We thank you for the word of God which you've given to us which is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our way. Father, we pray that we would continually look to it as we walk in this world and as we seek to be your lights. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past four sermons, we've examined the teaching of the Lord that he delivered to his apostles as he was about to send them out for the very first time. He chose his 12. He had them uh, uh, prepared. He had um, done a number of things himself to, to show them this is how he wanted them to be. Um, and... He was sending them out two by two. So he sent out six groups in pairs and they were to declare the arrival of the Messiah. In the passage today, we are looking at today, and this will be part of a two-part message on persecution in a ten-part series by the looks of it. Um, today we're looking at persecution as the, as the first part of that, that, this particular topic. Um, and he gave them this warning to tell them, listen, I'm sending you out two by two, but this is what you're going to have to expect when I send you out. He says, behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. That isn't a very pretty picture. Um, wolves eat sheep and sheep are fairly defenceless against them. But he says to them, see that word behold? <laughs> Every word in the Bible is so, so clear. Behold, it's like, Look at this. Take notice. Don't forget, this is what I'm actually going to do. And this is where, what I'm sending you. You need to be very clear about this. I'm sending you to do something which, for the average person, would be completely unreasonable to do. Sheep can't possibly survive in the midst of wolves. Wolves are ferocious pack predators, while sheep are defenceless and timid. And so Jesus, when he sent them out, didn't whitewash the environment that he was sending them into. He knew too well what they would face. And he told them in very clear terms what they would expect. And today we'll seek to understand what Jesus meant when he said these things to his disciples and to see how they might relate to us today. Let me give you a bit of a background. Throughout the ages, Christians have always encountered persecution at the hands of those committed to their destruction and committed against the gospel, even at the hands of those who called themselves Christians and who still call themselves Christians. The ones who would be more than happy to destroy the ones who, who simply say, I'm going to choose to believe the Bible rather than what men say. Violence has been the order of a day around Christianity. 
Christians have always, and have this very clear in your mind, Christians have always been in the minority. They have never been in the majority anywhere in the world. Even though you may look at statistics in the world which say, oh, there are two million plus Christians, sorry, two billion Christians in the world, that number is highly exaggerated. You might say, well, how can that be? The truth of the matter is that, that the vast majority of those people are simply Christians by name, are people who have inherited that name from their parents, who were simply born into a culture that calls itself Christian, who are part of a denomination that calls itself Christian but aren't necessarily Christian. And it's often those, these large groups, these large denominations that have persecuted the smaller ones. Genuine Christians have always been in the minority, though. We often made it, we, I think we made an estimate once about how many genuine Christians there might be in the world. I think I did it with Lincoln in the car one night. It was all driving home from, um, from uh, prayer meeting. And I think we came up with a maximum figure of about maybe, what, 300 million out of 2 billion? That might be genuine Christians, and that might be. So it's always, they've always been in the, in the minority all throughout the ages, from the very beginning. But we should count ourselves in very good company, even though we may be in the minority. Because great men of faith throughout history, from the beginning of the world till now, have always been in the minority. God's people have never been in the majority. And it says, if you read um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, there's a, there's a passage that's actually, turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 to 40. It gives a description of, of the lives of those who are counted as men of faith and people of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 to 40. Now, I only have part of the first verse here. But this is what it says happened to godly men and women throughout the ages. It says that they were, in verse 35, tortured. See the word tortured? Not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. That's a description of the, of the people who were godly, who God had chosen, who were living for the Lord. That's a description of their lives. Living in dens and caves, being destitute, being attacked, persecuted, sawn asunder, uh, slain with the sword, imprisoned. And you know something? Things haven't changed. You may think that things have changed, but they haven't. One of the reasons we call ourselves, and I'm happy to be called a Baptist, and some of you may, may not uh, understand fully the, the history behind Baptists, is that one of our enduring beliefs, and one reason I'm happy to be called a Baptist, is one of the enduring beliefs of a Baptist that separates us from pretty much other denominations is this thing called individual soul liberty. We believe in, very strongly in something called the liberty of the soul. In other words, we believe that scriptures teach very clearly that no one can be compelled to be a Christian. No one can be forced to be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You can't be... You can't be uh, it, it's not something that you, um, you get from your parents. It's not something you get from your culture. It's not something you, you obtain simply by being born in a certain time and in a certain place. We believe strongly that every person must choose for themselves to follow Christ. That's what separates us from a lot of other denominations who say that simply because you're born into a certain family, you take on that identity. It doesn't work that way. 
It's not something that can be passed on from generation to generation. Not something that's passed on from a culture. No one should be forced or can be forced to be a Christian. Coupled with this belief is an enduring conviction in the individual liberty of all people. This is the other thing that, that, that makes Baptists distinctive. We believe the most important thing in this world is the, the liberty of people to be able to exercise their own choice with respect to their own faith. But much of the world doesn't hold this principle. Coercion, intimidation, arrest have been very, very frequent over the ages and genuine Christians have always been at the receiving end. The apostles in this particular place were in essence the first Christians to experience this type of violence and Jesus himself was the example to them of what would essentially happen to them if they stood for the truth. According to Open Door, which is a ministry that keeps track of the persecution of Christians in the world. It says every month, 322 on average, Christians are killed for their faith. So 322 every month are murdered for their faith. When was the last time we saw that article in the newspaper? 214 churches are destroyed every month. Broken down, destroyed. 772 acts of violence, including beatings, Rapes, abductions and forced marriages against people who call themselves Christians happen every month as an average. You don't see these, these, um, these statistics shared too often. But it was surprising that even Angela Merkel from Germany said that Christianity is the most um, persecuted Christ, uh, faith in the world today. According to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from the governments or surrounding neighbours simply because they choose to follow Christ. As we consider these facts, I think what we need to understand is we live in a bubble. We live in a nice little bubble at the moment where we have tremendous freedoms, tremendous liberty. We have amazing resources and opportunities to serve the Lord. But we must consider that even though we're born into this time when freedom in this particular place, at this particular time, is so wonderful, um, it generally doesn't last for too long. If you look at history as a guide, the freedom we enjoy is not the freedom that's enjoyed in most of the world. And it's not the norm. We don't live in a very normal time. We need to make very, very uh, good use of this freedom that we have. You see, the, the Bible says, he who is given much is expected much of. And we've been given an unbelievable amount. We have not only have the resources of this thing called freedom to express ourselves, to worship in this way, to share the gospel, we have tremendous wealth. Regardless of where you're at at the moment, you and I live in a, in a, in a um, basic, the top 5% of the entire world in, term, in terms of the wealth that we, that we have. Even if you're unemployed, you still live in the top 5% of the entire world. So 95% of the world lives in much worse poverty compared to us. 90% of the world also lives in much worse conditions than us. And on top of that, they don't have the freedom that we have. So we have freedom, wealth, resources, and generally much better health than people out there as well. While people out there are struggling to find the next meal, you and I are not worrying about our next meal. We're worrying about things like careers and accumulating wealth and, and what happens when your internet goes out and stuff like that. They're the things that concern us. But understand something, this may not last too long. And second of all, God asks for an account of what he gives us. So when we stand before God one day, when we stand before our Saviour one day, 
and there's a person who, has, who, who was a believer in a country that had zero money, who, had try, who needed to find food for his family and, and spend all of his time trying to just to eat and survive. And then we're standing next to that person. What are we going to say? What, what account will we give of how we used our time? Do you understand what I'm saying? What are we going to say to the Lord? Oh, I spent most of my time, I don't know, watching television. Spent most of my time spending money on myself. Spent most of my time uh, entertaining myself or worrying about my career or worrying about my house or worrying about whatever else it is. How will we give an account for that? Because even now, if we speak about these things, already my heart breaks because I know the person who has zero is probably going to give a better account than me. What will, what will it be like when we get there? And we actually realise even more than today how much time we wasted, how much resources we threw away. Remember, and I've shared this more than once, we have one life to live, one, only one, and it will be gone before we know it. 70 or 80 years, 90 years, and if you're lucky, you might even live to 100. That's not a long time. It's not. You might think it's a long time from this point of view, but where we spend an eternity after will depend on how we live now. When Jesus delivered the message to his apostles, the persecution had not started yet. But Jesus would experience greater and greater resistance against him in the days following this discourse. The devil was being threatened. So Jesus was sending his people out. The message was going out. The devil was starting to panic. And what we find in scripture is that he ramps up the attacks on Jesus. Look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 10 with me. It says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpent and harmless as doves. Now what's the difference between a sheep and a wolf? Jesus knew that they would be in danger. And untrained for any type of uh, attack, they themselves didn't know how to attack. And wolves hunt in packs as well. Wolves are very, very, um, they're strategic when wolves hunt in packs and they see, they see a flock, let's say they might see a flock of sheep, their goal is to separate one of the sheep, especially a young lamb or, or a sheep that might be, um, might be injured, and they'll try and corral it to isolate it so they can destroy it. Wolves are very, very uh, devious. They hunt in packs. They are ferocious. They are powerful. Sheep, on the other hand... don't have many teeth they spend their time eating together and just moving from place to place they have no offensive abilities they can't attack they can't even defend themselves and this demonstrates precisely what the apostles were going into they didn't apostles were sent out two by two in an environment where people would be strategizing to destroy them. Do you understand? So when they saw these apostles coming with a particular message, these other people who Jesus described as wolves would be working out, oh, how do we get rid of these people? How do we isolate them? How do we destroy them? Whereas the people that, that the apostles that Jesus sent out had no intention to do that. They were simply there just to share the word. So Jesus commands them and he says, be wise as serpents but as innocent as doves. That's a strange one, isn't it? He takes another two animals now, and he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Seems a bit of a contradiction, but it's not. Because you can be wise, but innocent at the same time. Wisdom does not necessarily mean that you're corrupted by that wisdom. There is a difference between the knowledge that comes from heaven and the knowledge that comes from earth. Let me give you an example. 
Does the Lord not understand fully what sin is? Of course he does. He wrote the law. He knows exactly what sin is. He knows it better than us. He understands the implications of it, where it starts, how it develops, how it grows, how it infests, and how destructive it ultimately is. He understands it fully, but he's not drawn into it. You can be knowledgeable about something without having it become part of you. You can understand the principles of war used by your enemy without becoming like your enemy. The Bible calls us not to be ignorant of the devices of the devil. It says that as Christians, we are not to be ignorant of the tactics and the strategies that he uses to destroy us and destroy the church. The devil uses tactics and tricks in order to fool people, to divide people, to weaken them. And the word of God expects us to be knowledgeable about these tricks that he uses. Turn to Luke chapter 16 with me just for a moment. There is a, a parable that the Lord gives or a story that the Lord gives about an unjust steward. And I just wanted to share with you one verse from that particular story. Because this fellow, this unjust steward in chapter 16 of, of Luke, was a person who was taking advantage of the job or the position that he was in. He eventually he was stealing money from his master. So someone who was responsible to, to get money and loan money and make sure that, that people were doing what they were meant to be doing. And said he, he used his position to make himself wealthy. He was taking bribes on the side. He was doing whatever he was doing. And he got caught out. When he got confronted by, the, by his master, by his boss, and he realised he was going to be in trouble and get kicked out of a job, what he did is he went to all the people that owed his boss money and basically said to them, all right, instead of if you owe my boss $500, just give me $250 and the debt will be cleared. So what he did, he made himself friends of all the people that owed his boss money. Now, is that right to do? No, that wasn't right to do. Did he, did he fix up? Did he manipulate the circumstances to help himself? Yes, he did. And look what the Lord says in verse 8. Luke chapter 16, verse 8 says, And the Lord commended the unjust steward. Commended? Hang on, this guy did something shifty. He did something really that was illegal. But he commended him and said, you're smart. Because he had done wisely. For the children, look at this, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. You get that? The children of this generation, of this world, are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, which one are you? Are you a child of this world or are you a child of light? You're a child of light, I hope, this morning. And if you're a child of light, Jesus is essentially saying that the children of this world are wiser. Now, that wisdom is a worldly type of wisdom. It's a wisdom to manipulate, a wisdom to, to, to line your own pockets, a wisdom to, to set things up so it benefits you. And this is the type of wisdom that Jesus is speaking about when he's talking about these wolves compared to the, the apostles he was sending out. The wolves are strategic in the way they think. They think ahead of time. They think of what they have to do to set, what they have to set up in order to stop this other thing going on, in order to defeat someone else they don't like. The unjust steward here found himself in a corner and he did what came naturally to him. He manipulated his circumstances. He strategized about the future. And then he said, in order for me to be in a better position in the future and not be out in the street, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull some shifty maneuvers. And I'm going to make sure I set myself up properly at other people's expense. This is, what, this is the environment Jesus sent his apostles into. Into a world where people are naturally deceptive, naturally manipulative, naturally they strategize. Some people call this stuff street smarts. 
There is much politicking that goes on in the world today. And we would do well to actually not get involved in it too much. Because the world of politics is all about that sort of stuff. If you ever watch politics in general, it's about destroying your opposition. It's trying to gain the ascendancy. It's, it's, if, if the opposition says something good, do they ever actually admit that it's good? No, even if it's good, they have to try to find a way to actually say it's bad. And if they're doing something bad, they'll find a way to say it's actually good. There's a lot of politicking that goes on in the world, and it's a very, very mean game. They use dirty tricks and personal slander that corrupt the truth in order to win. Let's look at a few other tactics that the Lord teaches about the enemy and how we should be aware of them, um, or beware of them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Go back a few chapters. Jesus had already shared this information with his apostles, or just when they were still disciples. He tells them in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So Jesus teaches us a very simple test to see whether someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing, whether they're masking or the masquerading as something else that they're not. And this is the first lesson that he gives them, in that one of the tactics that the enemy will use to try to destroy churches or, or other Christians is that they masquerade as Christians. But all the while they're seeking to devour. In other words... They look one way on the outside, but on the inside they're very, very different. They look one way, they speak one way on the outside, but inside their thoughts are saying something else. They may compliment you to your face, but in their heart they're cursing you at the same time. And he says, there are these types of people who infiltrate churches to destroy them from the inside out. The devil knows how to play the game. He knows how to... He is the ultimate wolf here. The ultimate wolf. And he teaches the other wolves. He is the leader of that pack. And he knows a way to trick other Christians because sometimes we're too simple and we're not wary enough. Is that if he, if he has someone who comes along and says, I'm a Christian too. What he does, and he'll plant false doctrine through that person into the actual church. Why do you think we have so many denominations today? Can anyone name all the denominations? Because I can't. There would literally be hundreds and thousands of them. Christians who call themselves Christians. Now, why are there so many denominations, I wonder? Do you think God has something to do with that? No. Now, who has something to do with that? It's the one who has tried and infiltrated all these churches with false and different doctrines. Who has managed to convince certain people that the Bible is not enough. That Jesus is not enough. You need other things outside of that. You need other traditions. You need other things. Other revelations that have come after the Bible. You need special charismatic figures who God has sent down from on high. who have masqueraded as Christians and then have then split. They've managed to, to gain disciples for themselves and they've split off, which is why we, over the 2,000 years we now have today so many different denominations. But don't be surprised. It started from the beginning. 
If you read much of the letters in the New Testament from Paul, and especially with John, he warns them about many antichrists that had gone out, many false prophets that had gone out then, before 90 AD. They were already infiltrating all over the place, masquerading as Christians. In fact, uh, uh, there was a warning that was given to, um, to one of the, the women who, I think it was Phoebe, who was running a church, who had a church in her home that was meeting in her, her home, and she loved to be hospitable. So anyone who knocked in the front door and said, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I've come from another town, and I'm here to, to share the gospel, she would love to put them up. She probably had a place in her home where they would come in and they'd stay there, and she'd probably feed them and support them. And John says, uh, before you go and do all that, before you go and be so nice to them, make sure you check out what they're teaching. Make sure you check out their doctrine. Because when you support these people, and if they're teaching false doctrine or something that's opposite to what the Bible teaches or what we've been teaching you, who the apostles are, he says, don't even bid them Godspeed. Don't let them in your house. Don't encourage what they do. Because where you encourage and support them, you're actually helping to spread false, false doctrine. It's been going on from the beginning. The devil uses his tactics and tricks to fool people. Masquerading is one of them. But Jesus says that if you watch them closely, if it's not evident first up or at the face of it that there's something wrong, he says, look at their fruits. Look at the results of what they're doing. Look at their lives the results of what they do will produce bad results. They will speak peace, but there will be aggression and hostility. They will be like the Pharisees in the Lord called whitewashed tombs, who really had no heart or love for the people. They loved themselves more than the people that they were serving. Their fruit was often hypocrisy. The people know. You can generally tell whether someone's being hypocritical. When we find it often in our politicians and we see it often in other, in other people, in the church it's harder because this facade becomes a whole lot more complicated in here. But he says if you look at them, if you carefully scrutinise them, you will notice that the fruits of their life don't produce good fruit, aren't good. They're generally bad. And that will become evident sooner or later. And then it says that every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Know the, something else. That even though we or you may not catch them out, you may not find this person or these people that are masquerading in the church. God will. They can't hide hypocrisy from him. They can't hide what's going on in here from God. He will eventually judge. And the Bible says that they'll be hewn down and cast into the fire. But Jesus reiterates that by their fruits you will know them. Look at the fruits of their lives. There will be a pattern that comes out. On the contrary, a good tree will produce good fruits. People who generally will produce good fruits are people who give of their wealth, give of their time, Give of their effort, give of their energy and their prayers and encouragements. They give grace. They are patient. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven to eight. Giving is something that God loves to do. And someone who imitates God is someone who generally gives. Doesn't necessarily mean just money, but it will mean that they give of themselves to others in order to love, support, help, encourage, 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 to 8, it says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. There is, and this is speaking primarily of giving to the church, where he says, don't do it begrudgingly. If you're going to give, give it and purpose it in your heart what you're going to give. And God will give you even more grace. But this principle applies to everything that we do. If you're forced to come to church on a Sunday, if you're forced to help out someone in church, if you're forced to pray for other people, if you're being forced to give, if you're forced to do the very things that Jesus told you to do and, told and taught us to do in his word, if that's something that has to be forced out of you every time, something wrong. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver and that's giver of a lot of other things apart from money because a lot of other things as I've said we already have. How much of our time do we give? How much of our wealth do we give? How much of our support, our prayers, our energy do we expend on other people? Or do we consume it all on ourselves? People who are genuine for the Lord, are givers, not drawers. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Because the other fruit that will generally be shown will be evident in a person's life who is genuine for the Lord is love. Look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. So someone who is not masquerading as a Christian will generally be able to show love with godly knowledge. Now, why, is, why, why does he say here that you may abound yet more and more, your love may abound more and more in knowledge? Because just as today, there is a fake sense of, of what love is. If you go to Hollywood, you're going to get a false idea of what love is. And if you go to the world with all of its teachings about uh, gay marriage and all this other stuff that's going on, apparently, according to them, real love means that we have to accept that stuff. That we have to accept that homosexuality is right. Not only right, but in the church, it should, be, it should be accepted. I just saw a recent article that in America, in New York, one of the largest evangelical churches has just accepted um, membership from people who are openly gay and who classify themselves as part of the LGBT community. Now, what strikes me about that he said, that's like saying, pick any other, pick any other uh, sin the Bible talks about. And it's a bit like saying, I'm part of the pedophile community. I'm part of the murderous community. I'm part of the liars club. I need to be part of your church too. So this is, these are a group of people that obviously have a problem. They've classified themselves as this type of person. And the church has said, I'm happy for you to identify yourselves as sinners. You can be a member as well, with all the rights and privileges of membership of a, of a Christian church. How does that even work? Yet, this is the, the state that our world is in. Because according to our world, if we don't accept them for who they are, if we don't then give them a marriage, 
which has never been defined in that particular way, then we're not loving towards them. That has nothing to do with love. See, according to the world, that's love. That we just give them and give them whatever they, whatever they want to make them happy. We can't offend them in any particular way. That's not love according to what the Bible teaches. Love according to what the Bible teaches is to warn them about their lifestyle. Because they, they ultimately will be judged by God and will lead them into an eternity in hell. If I don't warn them, what type of love am I actually showing them? But our, the love that the Bible teaches is often twisted around the opposite directions and is spoken about in derogatory terms in the world. As a pastor, how would you like it if, if your feelings were the most important thing to me? What do you think I'd be teaching you from the front over here? If your feelings, the way you felt, were the most, was the most important thing, how do you think I would be preaching? I'd be preaching feel-good messages every week. I'd wanna, I want to make you feel fantastic about yourselves. I want you to leave this place with a big smile on your face. I, want you, I, want, I wouldn't say anything to offend you. I, wanna, I just would want to encourage you and say how wonderful the job you're all doing. That's become the mantra for most churches today. It's to tell people how wonderful they are, how much potential they have, and that God is only here to help me fulfil the wonderful potential that's already inside me. Now, that's the rubbish that's being taught in the churches today. It makes people feel good. Is it love? That's not love. If you look at Jesus, most of Jesus' teachings, he warned about health. He warned people about judgment. That means he wasn't, Jesus had it all wrong. We've got to change the way we look at this whole thing and say, all right, Jesus, you, you, what, what you did worked in your day. It doesn't work today. Today is a different world. We are so much more advanced today, aren't we? We are so much more enlightened as people. You know, we are so, we are so we've gone up the evolutionary scale in such a, such a degree. But you can't compare the, 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 the primitive people in Jesus' day to the people today. I tell you, people are more primitive today. We are thicker today than the average person 2,000 years ago. And I use the word thick from the point of view of heads that just don't work. Brains that don't work. We have been, we have been conditioned to think that entertainment and my happiness and my life is the most important thing about me and the way I feel is ranked the highest of everything else. That's why you can't offend anyone today. You can't speak the truth for fear that if it offends someone, they'll bring you to court. So truth takes a back seat to feelings in our society. And people don't even bat an eyelid about that. No idea about what's going on. That we have been conditioned in our society not to even think critically about things anymore. The average person cannot think critically in our society. They don't know. They can't judge between right and wrong because they've been taught, we've been conditioned to think there is no standard morality. There is no standard. So in other words, my spiritual truth can be different from your spiritual truth. What's right for me doesn't have to be right for you. It's all relative. That lie's been going on for a good 50 to 100 years now. And the average person has swallowed it, hook, line and sinker. So when we come along and say, hang on, the Bible says, they say, uh-uh, oh, 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 hold on. That's your truth. My truth is a different truth. So... The, the tomfoolery that goes on in the world where people think that because of the technology that's developed over the last you know, 2,000 years somehow is making us smarter. Um, look at the average Twitter conversation and I will submit to you that the intelligence level has not gone up. Look at the level of arguments in our society and it hasn't improved. 
In fact, they've done a study and they've found that people are dumber today than, they, than we were 2,000 years ago. True fruit, according to the Bible, is righteous. It's God's truth. It's love according to truth, not according to lies and how people feel. Let me give you one more passage just to, just to separate these two things because I want you to understand the devil uses tactics to break down churches and to destroy the word of God and he's doing a very good job of it. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 to 26 gives us a very good contrast between these two types of fruits. It doesn't include every fruit but it gives us a good contrast on what to look for. Starting with verse 19 of Galatians in chapter 5, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery. That's rife in our society. Fornication. That's rife in our society. Uncleanness. Completely over the top in our society. Lasciviousness, which is lewd, a lewd behaviour. Completely over the top in our society and accepted. Idolatry. Once again, common in our society, witchcraft, common in our society, hatred, very common in our society, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, of the such like, and of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All these things, if you were to epitomise Western civilization today, the pinnacle of Western civilization, these things are common and accepted. Then it contrasts those in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another or envying one another. Look at those as two very good examples or distinctions between the world's fruit and God's fruit. Let's go back to our passage. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. He says there, But beware of men... For they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Jesus warned them about how they would be treated. Was he painting a rosy picture for them? Not at all. On Wednesday evenings, we've been working through the book of Acts, and we've noticed how the early church as it began to grow, we're meeting in the temple every day. Every day they would go to the temple. The apostles would give them a, a, a message. They'd break bread together in their homes and the church. And God was adding to the church every day. The problem was that as the church was growing and growing and growing and miracles were being done by the apostles and people were converting to Christianity, the problem was that the rulers in Israel the council, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, the people who were in high positions, who were in control of the temple. And this is Jerusalem. This is the city of Jerusalem. This is the the centre of their faith. Became more and more threatened. And as a result, became more and more hostile towards Christians. At first, they dragged them in and said, you better give an account of yourself. What are you guys doing? And they said, well, we're followers of Jesus and we believe that he is the Messiah and the people, what you're seeing happening is as a result of him. So they said to them, you better not go and talk about this stuff anymore. We want you to keep quiet. And they said to them, how can we keep quiet? We have to obey God rather than men. So they let them go. They dragged them back in again at a later time after they'd done more miracles. And this time they warned them the same thing. They said, didn't we tell you not to say anything about Jesus? And they said, how can we obey you rather than, have, rather than God? So this time they beat them up and sent them back. The third time, they put them in jail. And God busted them out in the middle of the night. 
And the next phase we see is that the church was being completely persecuted. They were going from house to house, dragging people out to condemn them and have them stoned to death. You see an escalation of hostility towards those who were living for the Lord. So the Lord tells them, when they go out two by two, you'll be delivered up to councils. You'll be handed over to the authorities. When you go to a synagogue and you're sharing from the front of the, of the synagogue, this is what we've found, that Jesus is the Messiah that the Bible promised us, um, they will beat you up and they will try to kill you. And, and it says that they'll even bring you before governors and kings. So why did Jesus mention these things? Because he knew already what would happen. He'd already experienced it. He knew ahead of time because he's God and he knows all things. This is what would happen to them, not just during this missionary trip that he sent them on, which would last probably a few weeks, but later on as well. He was preparing them for when he would go back to heaven, what would happen to them. He already knew the future for himself and his apostles. Jesus was preparing them for the future. So in verse 19 he says, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Isn't that an amazing thing? He goes, don't prepare before. When they, when they drag you into their courts and they, and they bring you before to judge you, don't prepare your spiel beforehand. Don't prepare yourself. And I can imagine, and if you put yourselves in the apostles' shoes, right, these were two guys that were walking around. So they were walking from town to town to town. So you can imagine like the conversation that they'd have walking between one place and the other. So they may have gone to one town and they may have um, been rejected by the authorities over there. They may have been kicked out of town. They may, have been, and they may have been attacked while they were at the front of the synagogue sharing what, what the Lord had told them to share. And I could imagine them talking about, did you see what they said there? The other one would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I thought, I'm thinking about it, maybe we should have said this. If we told them this specific verse from the Bible, maybe they would have believed us. And so maybe they would have tried that in the next town that they were in. So as they're, as they're going from town to town to town, their story would be evolving, wouldn't it? It would grow based on their experiences and, until they developed the perfect spiel. So whatever town they went into, they'd know exactly what to say every time. Um, that's not the way God wanted them to do it. He doesn't, didn't want them to have a standardised spiel, a standardised script from which to work. He wanted them, if they were in a position where they were dragged in front and had to give an account of themselves, he wanted to put the words in their mouths at that specific time. Remember, one of the key lessons, and this has been brought up in a previous sermon, that the Lord wanted them to learn while they were away from him is that regardless of where they were, regardless of what they had, he would provide for them. Do you remember? He said, don't take a coat with you. Don't take a staff with you. Don't bring your wallets with you. Don't bring anything with you. Not a separate, another pair of shoes if those ones break. You ought to bring nothing with you apart from what you've got on you right now. And can you imagine that? Imagine if God sent one of us into the next town. Let's say he wanted you to go to Ballarat. Right? And he says, I want you to make your way there, but you want to take a wallet with you. You're going to take no extra clothes with you, no extra shoes. You've got no protection, and you have to make it there on your own. The first of all we say is, how am I going to get there? How am I going to... How am I going to survive while I'm there. And God says, don't worry. The Lord says, don't worry. It'll be provided for you. You just have to trust in me. Well, in the same way, he wanted them to trust him with their words. Because he wanted them to understand that they didn't have to have everything worked out in their, in their own minds. He was going to give them even the words to speak when they were in times of emotional stress and distress. 
And if they were trusting in him, he would give them exactly what they needed. But if they trusted in their own wisdom, they would fail. I've heard people use this particular passage to say that you shouldn't prepare anything. In other words, you shouldn't be preparing a message for a sermon, you shouldn't be preparing for a Wednesday evening, you shouldn't be preparing uh, whatever else it is. I would submit to you that this passage isn't talking about that. It's talking about when they've dragged you in front of governors. It says when they've delivered you up, not when you're delivering a message. But there's something that we can learn from this. There's a lesson for us today. Who has a testimony here? Not many of you have a testimony. Who has a testimony here? Go and put your hand up high. Okay. Everyone should have a testimony. And if you don't know what a testimony is, let me give it to you very briefly. A testimony is what God has done in your life. Nice and simple. It's what God did for you. How you came to be where you are today. How he saved you. How he's changed you. How he, you know that you have peace because you have a relationship with him. And how that's worked out in your life. Everyone should have a testimony. Every Christian should have a testimony. Because you may be called to give an account with that testimony. We are witnesses in front of this world. And every witness needs a testimony. So if you know Christ as your personal Lord and Saviour, you should have a testimony. But let me share something else with you. That testimony should not be fixed either. You may have a testimony, but that testimony may be the same thing you've said for the last 20 years. A testimony did not start and finish when you got saved. A testimony started when you got saved, but continues to today. A testimony is a continual witness of what God is doing in your life, both then, throughout your life, and today. If that testimony stopped when you were first saved, is something wrong? Because that's when you first met Jesus. That's when we first got to know him. That's when we first realised the truth. It didn't finish there. A genuine testimony is something that God keeps adding to. It's not something that, it's not something that we memorise and we say the same way every time we, we, we do it. Because God wants us to be living testimonies of his grace. It's not a production line. And it's the same way in sharing the gospel. You and I may have learnt certain verses to share the gospel. I hope some of you know those verses, where to find them by now. But it doesn't mean that every time you sit next to a person that you say the same words over and over again. Because every person we meet is different. Their circumstances are different. Their heart is in a different place. They are coming from a different angle. We need to be good listeners as well as speakers. Whether it's our testimony, whether it's the gospel, God doesn't want us to have something memorised. He didn't want the apostles to have this thing memorised either. He wanted them to rely on him as well. And there's a certain reliance that we have to have when we are sharing the truth with other people. The, fight, the other thing that we need to consider is that the apostles were also given the important task of writing the word of God as well. Do you know that? So you have Peter's name in the Bible. You have Paul's name in the Bible. You have James and you have John. You have other apostles who were given the important task of writing the word of God. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 because... Just one more important point here is that the apostles needed the practice on being able to hear the Holy Spirit speak to them because they were going to have the job of writing the words that he told them specifically. That doesn't happen with us today. It happened with them though. And 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts, 
Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you see that? So holy men spake, and then they wrote what they spake, as the, the, word, as the Holy Spirit moved them to speak those words. The reason we can trust the, the Bible, the reason we can trust the Word of God today, is because those men listened faithfully to what God was telling them. They recorded those words faithfully, and God has preserved those words faithfully for us. It was important for them to listen. And it's important for us to listen as well. The lesson for us here, I believe, is that you may feel persecuted in your workplace, in your homes, with your family, with your friends, by what you believe and by what you say. When you share the gospel, maybe you're timid to share the gospel. Maybe you get embarrassed. Maybe you don't have the right words to say at the right time. But that comes with practice. That comes with practice. And it comes with being able to listen to what the Spirit's telling you at the right time and not listening as much to your emotions. You see, our emotions are very, very loud. I think I've given this example once before. We can be in, a mother can be in a very crowded room with people screaming and talking and doing whatever. As soon as she hears the voice of her baby, her mind will completely focus on that particular sound because she's tuned into it. That can be our lives. Our lives can be, even though with all the hustle and bustle of what goes on in our minds and in our hearts, even though you may go through terrible emotions and things that go on in your, in your mind, if the, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, you can tune those things out. But it takes practice and it takes a desire to want to do that as well. So the apostles were given a task of being able to listen to the word of God. And so are we. We've been given a task of being able to listen to what the Spirit's telling us. Let me close this passage today with just two more points. Go to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. I want to encourage you that when you do speak the word of God, when you live it in front of other people, you should expect trials and tribulations. It's natural. Don't feel as if you're alone when you experience people ridiculing you, mocking you, whatever is going to come your way. It's normal, not unnatural. Okay, So don't feel as if what's God doing to me here? Because this is what happened to Jesus. This is what happened to his disciples. When you speak the truth, the devil starts to panic. And so he goes on the attack. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, no need to turn there. He says, For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. The Scriptures continually reinforce this notion that when you choose to follow Jesus, you will suffer tribulation. You will have persecution. You will go through trials. It is normal. It's not unnatural. It's normal. But there are two things to encourage you today. Okay? To close off the message. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Turn with me there. Sorry, I've gone a little bit over time, but um, we'll finish up now. A bit warm in here. I want you to keep two things in mind next time you suffer persecution or ridicule or whatever it is you go through simply because you say you believe in Jesus. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you 
and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. First point, there is, there is much joy in knowing that we are in good company. If you are persecuted for what you believe, rejoice. You are blessed. We are blessed when we suffer persecution because we have been counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. And the second point is in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5 says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The second point I want you to keep in mind when you suffer persecution of any type is that it all works for good. Even though you may go through persecution, it's, Romans tells us that we should glory in it. Any suffering we go through. Any tribulation we go through, any trial we go through, any persecution we go through, it says we should glory in it. We should say, ha ha, fantastic, give me more. Because we're taught very clearly that tribulation worketh patience. It makes us more patient. It gives us experience and it gives us even more hope. There are benefits to going through persecution. There are benefits to being labelled as a Christian and being persecuted for it. So today I want you to take those two main points away with you. We'll finish this off next time. But if you're experiencing persecution in any form, or if, if you're experiencing persecution, don't be afraid. It's normal. And understand that God has not taken his eyes off you. He hasn't forgotten you. You may go through the worst persecution, but the more you go through... The Bible says there is more blessing in it for us. And I want you to understand that Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. Today, if you know the Lord, expect persecution. And live your life. And live the light of his life in this world. Don't be afraid. You may be thinking, I'm gonna, I want to withdraw myself and, and not share what I have with the world. Don't do it. Because that's the devil wanting to wanting you to put your light under a bushel, under a basket, and not shine it on top of a hill. Let's be those lights in the world. God bless you. Thank you.